So we're going to be short and sweet today. We're going through Luke 19, 41 and 48. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when, when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. Jesus entered the temple courts. He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because the people because all the people hung on his words. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene, the most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Erene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. 
This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Well, welcome everybody. Wasn't it like just a really beautiful Sunday so far? To be able to celebrate Shelley and welcome on David and Megan. Just feels like a real joy. So thanks for that. Uh, if you want to uh, take your Bibles or your phones or whatever it is that you use and go to Luke chapter 19. We are right now in the season of Lent and walking through a, a new series from Luke 19 to 24. In the series we've called, We See Ghosts. And the reason we called it that is that in Luke 24, right at the end of this section of Scripture, following the resurrection, after you have the road to Emmaus where a few of the disciples encounter the resurrected Jesus, Jesus appears to the remainder of the disciples, and you have this really just amazing moment where Jesus appears to the disciples, and the text says, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus appears to them. They'd heard about it. Like, these people had already heard that Jesus was resurrected. They'd already heard Jesus' words that were kind of preparing them for resurrection, and yet they still can't comprehend what's happening in the midst of them. And so it is easier for them to, to imagine that Jesus is a ghost than that the resurrected king is present to them. And, and though it's different, I think that we have a tendency to basically do the same thing with Jesus, his words, and his work. We struggle to like comprehend what it is that he's saying and what he's inviting us into and what he's calling us to and what he's accomplishing. And so because we struggle to comprehend it, because it doesn't fit our imagination, how we think the world is supposed to work, I think what we often do is then we take Jesus and we try to force him into our own frames, our own box, to force him to fit our imagination. We reduce him and his work. And so one easy way of seeing this is like we often reduce the work of Jesus to something that is only spiritual, only immaterial. Like it only has to do with spiritual realities or kind of like ethereal things or it only has to do with what happens after I die. And that's like the whole good news is just post-death or spiritual things. But that's a reduction of Jesus. 
Or we take his ideas and we keep them safely away from everyday life. And so we take the ideas and the words and the teachings of Jesus and we're like, well, he couldn't have meant that when he was talking about money. Or he couldn't have meant that when he was talking about power. Or he couldn't have meant these things when he was talking about family and self. And so we make them hyper-spiritual abstractions that we can do whatever we want to with. Or maybe worse of all, we reduce the work of Jesus. And so all of a sudden, the cross becomes small and insignificant. Like, it's not enough for me. It's not enough for what I bring to Jesus. It's not enough for the problems of the world. It's not enough for these other people. It's small and insignificant. We reduce it to something smaller. Now, when the disciples do that in this text, you get this amazing moment. They reduce Jesus to just a ghost, a spiritual reality. And he says this. He says, touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. As they try to reduce him and make him smaller and make him less than and make him insignificant, Jesus invites those around him to touch and see who he really is, which defies reduction. He has his flesh and bones. This is what's happening throughout the season of Lent as well. And I think what's happening in these last few chapters of the book of Luke. As we see Jesus kind of journeying towards the cross, which is what we celebrate or or tell in the season of Lent, and it's what's happening here in this book of Luke, as he's moving towards the cross, Jesus reveals more and more of himself, and it gets more intense, and it gets more vivid, and and you get these more... Um, real pictures of what he's doing, what he's accomplishing, and why he's here. And as he does that, it becomes harder and harder to reduce him, to make him something else, to, to make him a ghost, to make him a spiritual abstraction, to make him just a good teacher. And it leaves everyone who encounters Jesus with this question, like, what do we do with this person who has his flesh and bones? What do we do with this person who's saying these things and claiming these things and accomplishing these purposes? We started last week with the beginning of Luke, and Heather unpacked these first verses in Luke, and you see one response, one option of how we can respond to Jesus, and it's in the story of Zacchaeus where you have this infamous tax collector who's been exploiting people and taking more taxes for himself, and he experiences Jesus, has this encounter, and then responds by giving half of what he has, paying back everyone he's exploited. And so this person who's unlikely and unexpected, who you don't think is going to respond well to Jesus, and all of a sudden they respond to Jesus and change. But as we come to the end of Luke, we see a totally different response to Jesus. And it's from the people who are supposed to respond well to Jesus. The people who are supposed to know him, the people who are studying scriptures, awaiting Jesus, the people who have been preparing for this figure that the Bible calls the Messiah. Like they're supposed to know, they're supposed to be paying attention, they're supposed to be waiting for Jesus, and yet when they experience Jesus, they reject him and plot his murder. And I think that leaves us with a question. Why do some people 
receive Jesus, like Zacchaeus? And why do some people reject Jesus, like the religious leaders? Why do some of us have moments receiving Jesus that then leads to this Zacchaeus-like moment? And why do some reject Jesus and walk away? Well, in Luke 19, Jesus, I think, gives us a really good answer to this question. If you look at Luke 19, verse 42, Jesus says this, this clear, succinct, but very powerful statement as he's talking about the religious leaders. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What Jesus is saying is the, the religious leaders, the, this culture of religion rejects Jesus because they did not know what would bring them peace. They did not know what would bring them peace. And as we just watched in the video, when Jesus says peace, he doesn't mean uh, simply a lack of anxiety or a sense of ease or comfort. He means that phrase shalom, wholeness and restoration, completeness. And he says that these leaders, they did not know what would bring wholeness. And I think if we're, if we're like kind of paying attention to the story of Israel in this moment in time, I think honestly it's actually hard to blame the religious leaders for not knowing what would bring them peace. Like on this side of the story, post-resurrection, the church following Jesus in the season of Lent, it's easy to look at the religious leaders and be like, why didn't you get it? We get it. But if you're in the moment, like it actually makes a lot of sense why they would not know what would bring them peace. Because there is more than one kind of peace being offered them. Jesus will actually say this in John 14, verse 27. He's talking about giving his followers peace. And he says, I offer you peace, but not peace as the world gives. So he's like, there's two kinds of peace, at least. He's like, there's the peace that I'm giving, this vision of shalom, and then there is some other kind of peace. And for Israel, like that peace, that other option is really powerfully displayed. Israel, at this moment in history, is a subject of Rome. They have been conquered and oppressed, as had much of the known world for an ancient Israelite. The world that you know is now Rome and had been for a while. And Rome justified their conquering, expansion, and domineering by saying that they were bringing peace. Pax Romana, Roman peace. So they justified conquering the world, overcoming other nations, building their empire, unifying these places. They justified it all by saying that they were bringing peace. And they did bring benefits with them, road systems and laws. But the distinguishing feature of Pax Romana, Roman peace, is that it was bought and held with violence and control. But if you're a people group who has spent hundreds of years under oppression, because Rome is just the newest oppressing empire in a long line of oppressing empires for Israel, right? They have Babylon, and then they have Persia, and then they have Greece, and now they have Rome. So they've spent so much of their history just under someone else. And if that's true, then Roman peace would probably be a really compelling offering. Why not conform to the empire? 
Why not conform to the empire and trust their peace? It seems like their power and their might is doing something. Why not trust in it? Or why not use the same tools that Rome uses to resist Rome and establish your own peace? Why not conform and just give in, which you see some sets of religious leaders in Israel do. They just give in to Rome. They become politicians and political figures. They put their hope and their trust in the power of Rome. And then you see another group of people who's like, no, we'll use the tools of Rome, but we'll resist. We'll establish our own peace. So why not do that? Well, the problem Jesus articulates right after this. He says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will leave not one stone on another. What Jesus is saying is that we find the kind of peace we look for. We find the kind of peace that we look for. So if we look for peace in the Roman system, then we find a Roman kind of peace, one that is held by war. And specifically in this moment, Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, which in Israel's life comes in AD 70. So it's like they hoped in Rome, either in the tools of Rome to resist Rome, or they hoped that if they just trusted Rome, that it would secure a sense of peace. And then what happens? Oh, they lose everything. They get the kind of peace they looked for. They found the kind of peace that they were looking for. Now Jesus adds something else onto this statement that for him is getting at the real issue. He says, you're going to find the kind of peace you look for, and then he adds this statement just to add an additional amount of weight. He says, the real issue here is that you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And this statement is almost like hemmed at the end, and it's like you could read, they did not know what kind of peace they were looking for, and then you could read this statement at the end almost as the completion of that sentence, that you did not recognize the time of God's coming. He's like, you did not know what would bring you peace because you did not recognize me. And that's a massive accusation to make against Israel because Israel is God's people and their leaders are supposed to be pointing them to God. And if you were to look at Israel on the outside, you would say they are. Like that's exactly what they're doing. The leaders know their scriptures, they're keeping the laws, they're encouraging the people of Israel to keep the laws. And most importantly, as the story that we look at next, the temple is right there operating. People are going there, offering sacrifices. It looks like the people are worshiping God. But in this next story, this is what we see. Jesus enters the temple, the symbol of worship. And when he enters it, he says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He says, on the outside, it looks like Israel is worshiping God, but on the inside, he's like, you look like Rome. He's like, on the inside, you look like Rome. There's nothing different on the inside than 
Rome, and I can see that you have put your hope and your trust for peace in this Roman system, even though on the outside it still looks like you are worshiping God. I think this is one of the most common ways that we reduce God. Is that we use God for our own purposes. Now, this is, this is like a super dumb example. It's the first one that came to my mind, and I was like, I'm going to go with it. So when I was in high school, I had a curfew. I do not know what that curfew was, because I don't think I ever came home on time. <laughs> and my mom, who is a responsible parent, I promise. I feel like I tell a lot of stories, and you'd be like, is his mom a responsible parent? She is. The next day, she would ask me. She'd be like, hey, you know, why didn't you come home on time? And this was, I think, almost always my answer. I would always say, I was telling somebody about Jesus. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I'm glad you're with me. Here's the thing. That was like sort of true. It was like sort of true. Like in high school, I did like to talk about religion because I was a pretentious butthead. And so like I could sort of justify that in these contexts, I was telling someone loosely about Jesus. But mostly I was just flirting with a girl, which worked out because I married her. So, you know, you can't be too mad. So on the, <laughs> this is why this is a dumb example, but on the outside, like I was telling someone about Jesus, but on the inside, I looked exactly like everyone else. Now, most of the time, I think in our lives, it is significantly less conscious than this. But we don't think, I am going to use God for my own purposes. I think the way that this happens in our own life is that God just starts to look like us. Like the way we understand God and our theology and the way we read the Bible and the way we understand these moments in the Bible and the way we understand what God cares about and the way we understand God's attitudes and the way that we think about God's passions and concerns and what he loves and what he, God hates, it all starts to just resemble those things about us. What our attitudes are, what our passions are, what our concerns are. God begins to care about the things that we care about. There's this amazing quote that is accredited to Voltaire. I don't know if it really is, but it says this. In the beginning, God created man in God's own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. I think so often the God that we worship is a reflection of ourselves. So for Israel, the temple is operating, but as soon as you enter into the temple, it is just a reflection of the passions and priorities of Israel. It reveals where they've put their trust and where they've put their hope, and it is not in the worship of their God, it is in the practices of Rome. I think this is so true of us as well. That as we actually dig into how we understand God or as we dig into the way that we follow or the way that we live or the things that we care about, what we see is that the God we worship is just a reflection of ourselves. And then I think it's no wonder that we get to a place in our life 
where this God that we worship is disappointing. Either to us or to the people around us. And so we reject this God that we worship. And I think it's no wonder that as we think about God so often, we're disappointed in the peace that God offers, or we're so disappointed in the peace that God offers to the world. And at the end of the day, the reason that we're disappointed is because it's just more of the same peace we've always been offering ourselves. It's just Rome wrapped in religious language. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's like a, on the internet, this is the internet, I understand how technology works. It's all around you. Um, like, there's been a lot of famous, what they're calling deconversion stories, right? So, pastors who are like, I lost my faith, and this is the deconversion story, or like other famous figures who are like deconverting. And, and I, at one level, I think it's really sad and really heartbreaking to see people like wrestle with their faith and lose their faith, but. Like, I've been listening to more and more of them and reading more and more, and I think oftentimes, at the end of the day, like, I listen to it, I'm like, oh yeah, no wonder you rejected that. Like, no wonder you rejected that faith, and, 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 and as you wrestled with it, as you asked questions of it, it did not hold up to the scrutiny of your own ethics or of your own convictions or what you see around you, because the God that you were given isn't the God of the universe, it's just some pale reflection of a person. It's not the God that we see recorded in his story. It's not the God who is rescuing the world and the cross. It's not the God who breathes life into the universe and hovers over the waters. It's just a ghost of ourselves. And it should be rejected. Because it's empty and hollow and at the end of the day, dangerous. Because it's just Rome wrapped in different language. That's what Jesus sees when he enters into the temple. And here is, and here is maybe the most, the most surprising irony of this whole thing. Jerusalem, where this is happening, means city of peace. You could not write this level of irony, like intentionally. Like, it means a city of peace, and it was intended to be a place of peace because it is where God's temple was. It's where his presence was. It's where God dwelt with his people and where people could experience God. Like, that's what was supposed to bring peace to the people. But Israel rejected God for themselves, and they gave up God's peace. And so when Jesus sees this in the temple, he drives it out. He disrupts the empty worship. In order that his house might become a place of prayer in order to restore his presence and bring peace. He disrupts the empty worship of self and Rome so that the people might experience the presence of God again and know peace. And just like Jesus did in this moment, Jesus wants to do this in our lives and in our world today to enter the temples of our lives and disrupt our broken worship to restore his presence. Jesus wants to enter into the secret spaces of our lives and our worlds where we have oriented our worship around self and broken systems and broken empires. He wants to disrupt that to bring 
peace. This is what true peace is. It's the restoration, the wholeness, the completeness that comes from the presence of God. Both in our lives and in the world among us. God wants to restore his presence and wholeness to our lives and our community. God wants to reconcile the estranged and bring wholeness to relationships. And ultimately, God wants to reconcile heaven and earth together and fill the world with his presence, wholeness, completeness. That's the peace that's being offered. But for it to happen, there has to be a disruption of our empty, broken Worship. We need the worship of self disrupted. We need our hope in the peace of Rome and the world disrupted. And we desperately need our edifices of religiosity disrupted. But it is hard. This is what happens in the end of the text. The religious leaders cannot handle this kind of disruption. So they plan the ultimate rejection of Jesus, murder. And though today Jesus is obviously alive and victorious, like we too can reject Jesus and the peace that he offers the same way the religious leaders did. And so, Missio, the question for us is, will you... Allow Jesus to disrupt your life, the places of empty worship, in order to restore his presence and bring you peace? Or will you reject him for your own peace? Now, I think, I think most of us, like, we hear that, and I think most of us, like, we genuinely want to say yes to the peace that Jesus offers. But I do think it's often hard. We're like, I don't, what, what does that even mean? How do I go about that? Where do I start? What does the process look like? And so I was thinking, like, maybe just for this moment, it would be helpful to have some questions and some steps. Be like, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we receive the peace that Jesus is offering? How do we let him disrupt us? And what does that mean? And so I'm just going to begin with a couple of questions. Just three. And then following this set of questions, there'll be a minute of reflection. So have time to reflect on those questions, and then there'll be space for prayer and space for the table and space to sing and worship. So, but first, the first question that's helpful to ask is, what do you hope will bring you peace? And here's the thing. This question is for people who are like, I've been a follower of Jesus for 110 years. It's crazy. <laughs> Math is hard. And you're like, I, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and yet this question is still for you. Like, where do you hope in things other than Jesus for peace? What do you hope will bring you peace? Maybe you've never asked that question at all. Again, it's a good question. What do you hope will bring you peace? Second, I like this question, where does Jesus make you most nervous? Because what's happening is Jesus enters into the temple to disrupt worship. You see the religious leaders are nervous about Jesus. As he's entering into Jerusalem, riding the donkey, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they're like, hey, rebuke your followers. Tell them not to worship you. Because the thing that Jesus is doing makes them 
nervous. And so where does Jesus make you most nervous? And here's the thing. If there is not a space that Jesus makes you nervous, you have reduced God and made him in your own image. Again, if you've been following Jesus for 15 seconds or 15 years, there should be places that Jesus makes you nervous. As you genuinely reflect on what it is that he's calling us into, where does Jesus make you nervous? And I think as you put those two questions together, what they begin to reveal is where we need disruption. Because you kind of just place those two questions together and let them dialogue together, maybe take them to house church, or maybe you're already actually working through questions like this at change group, or maybe you bring them to your family or to your friends, and you begin to wrestle through these questions, they start to reveal where you need disruption. And that leads to the third question. Do you believe that Jesus wants to restore his presence to your life and world and bring you peace? If you're reading the text, we we kind of skipped over this, but when Jesus, the first thing he says before he says they didn't know it would bring them peace, it just says that Jesus weeps over the city. Jesus isn't entering into Jerusalem because he wants to just like shame them for having peace in different places. And he doesn't enter into the temple knowing that they're going to kill him to shame them. He's entering into those spaces because he wants to restore his presence because he wants the people of Israel to know peace. And the same is true of us, that Jesus weeps when we do not receive his presence. He weeps when we do not experience his peace. And he continues to enter into spaces even when we reject him. So, Missio, do you believe that Jesus wants to restore his presence to your life and to your world? Now, if this is a thing that you're saying yes to, like for maybe the first time, or it's like a renewed experience, then would you go and pray with somebody? I know that's a big ask. It's like bold. You're like an introvert. I'm like, I don't want to go talk to somebody. They might have coronavirus. (laughs) Would you just, there'll be people right over here who want to pray with you. And would you walk over there and be like, this is a thing that I've never asked before, but I want to know the peace and presence of Jesus. Would you just walk over there and pray with somebody? And then would you come to the table? It's a moment where we practice receiving the peace of Jesus through practicing his presence. That's what we do when we gather at this table. And so you come to this moment, break the bread, dip it in the cup, And know that God wants to restore his presence to your life. And then maybe if this is like a first or a new thing, would you think about getting baptized? It's the prime symbol next to the table of us participating in this thing that Jesus is doing of him restoring his presence to us. And so I just put the link how you can do that really easily on the screen. You can just go to the website, slash baptism, fill it out, and somebody will contact you. Now, maybe you're like me and you've done this hundreds of times. Great. Would you come to the table? And as you come, would you know that Jesus wants to restore his presence to you? And would you bring those questions, those places of disruption? And then, I didn't put this on the screen, but as you leave this place, Would you know that you are a people of God's presence? 
Like he's filled you with his presence. That's what it means to be the church. And so as you leave this place, you leave a people of peace. And so would you leave this space and enter into your workplaces and enter into your families and enter into your neighborhoods knowing that you have been sent there as a people of presence to bring peace. So would you come to the table, experience the peace of Jesus, and then all of us, would we leave this space sent a people of peace. Let's see, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for I first just thank you for the ways in which you always enter spaces that reject you. And so we know just over and over again that that you continue to enter into our lives, no matter how many times we've rejected, no matter how many times we've reduced, consciously or subconsciously, we can trust that you're there. So God, help us out of the trust of your pursuing of us to allow you to disrupt our lives and fill it with your presence. God, help us to know your peace and your presence in this space so that we can leave the people of peace and presence. God, in your name we pray. Amen. You see, we're going to continue worshiping together. As I said, there are people over here who would love to pray with you. If you want to find me, I'll be standing in the back. You can come and pray with me. But you come to the table. The bread is gluten-free. The cup is non-alcoholic. We have, uh, in addition to the, the, like, the normal communion elements, in a bowl you'll see like um, specifically wrapped. If you're concerned about sickness or um, you're trying to protect your immune system. This is specifically there for those people, so don't dig around uh, with your dirty cloths. And then we've added a, a, just a new moment into our, our liturgy today. Right now, there'll be a moment of reflection, just a minute for you to reflect on the questions. And so they'll just stay up here, a minute to reflect, and then right after that moment of reflection, there'll be a short song about how we have Come from dust and the dust we will return. A Lenten song. Would you sing that song before you come to the table? Let it bring you into this space. And keep worshiping with us, Miss Young.